Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Malcolm Gladwell is a best-selling author whose most recent book, I believe, is called The Outliers, popularized a principle that he calls the 10,000-hour rule. He claims that particularly in intellectual fields, success is the result of a task committed over and over and over again for at least 10,000 hours. Probably his most famous example of this was Bill Gates, who at the age of 13 was given access to a personal computer in a high school lab, which allowed him to master the art of computer programming long before it was available to many other people. And within 10 or 12 years, at the age of 25, he founded a company called Microsoft. He also speaks about the Beatles, who played together eight hours a day for a period of four years in Hamburg, Germany, before they were ever known, amassing 10,000 hours of practice and playing time together before they returned to England and became famous. 10,000 hour rule has been criticized, of course, by many people who think it's reductionistic and simplistic, but it did tap into a sense on the part of many people that life is made up not just of big decisions and big moments along the way. Life is made up of thousands and thousands of small decisions and small moments, and those small moments and those small decisions weigh as much in your life as do the big ones. Moments where your life is shaped aren't always momentous. Many times they're unseen and they're repetitious, we would say. They happen over and over and over again. Well, today we come back to this magnificent chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13, and we find ourselves thinking about this grand topic of love but thinking about it in some of the smallest of details. We would say even in some of the smallest of moments. What Paul is unfolding for us here is what we might call love in the little things. You may remember he opened the chapter by talking about these these monumental sacrifices that people might make along the way, uh, monumental moments where they have prophetic powers and giving their body to be burned and doing all of these amazing things before Paul turns his focus to point to what love really looks like. Love is not just making one big sacrifice every now and then. It isn't even one big sacrifice every day. It is a combination of dozens and dozens, maybe we would say hundreds of decisions that we make along the way, maybe Hundreds of decisions every day. In nearly every situation we find ourselves. Now if we understand what Jesus taught us about love in the past, it doesn't surprise us here. Because Jesus said that love is the summary of all of God's law. Everything he says that you'll find in the Old Testament, someone asked him what's the greatest commandment, he said every commandment and the prophet's And the writings and all those things, he says, every one of them are summarized in two points. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and in your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, what he's saying is, if you want to know God's will 
in every single situation of your life, God's will is defined by love. Love in every situation and love for every person. Remember, Jesus drove this point home when he was challenged, well, then who is my neighbor? He told a, a story of a good Samaritan showing that every person is your neighbor. Every person you encounter, even, even one that you would consider an avowed enemy, anyone you interact with at any time is your neighbor. So the law of love is in application at all times. Every person, every situation, the most dire and even the most hated are times of application for love. And of course, all your interaction with God, which is all the time, you must love Him with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's comprehensive. That, that is all-encompassing. That was Jesus' point in His teaching on the law, and it's Paul's point as we come to 1 Corinthians 13. What he's telling us is that love is not isolated to occasional significant situations when we might feel the need to focus our attention on others, love is always active. It's active even in the, in the little things. And you remember we were talking even last week how as Paul unfolds this for us, his emphasis is on that action. He's not telling us so much what love feels like as much as what love looks like. The emphasis is on behavior. The emphasis is on action, it is on responses, it is on the way that love doesn't respond. Fourteen descriptions in, in all that Paul gives us in verses four through seven. Fourteen descriptions that, as we said, can be broken down into three basic sets. He gives us, first of all, two affirmations of love. He follows it with, three, uh, with, with, excuse me, with eight antitheses of love. And finally, four attitudes of love. Last week we started by looking at two of these affirmations when Paul told us love is patient. It withholds temper for a long time. It is, as some versions say, long-suffering. Love is willing to endure personal wrong for an extended period of time without retaliating. Not only that, he says love is kind. That is, Love receives not only injuries from others, but in the midst of that, it even finds ways to show kindness and bestow benefits on them. That is the two broad affirmations with which Paul begins his section. But then he moves to eight things that love is not. Eight things that we would say are the antithesis of love. Eight antitheses. And we want to look at those in detail this morning. He tells us, first of all, in verse 4, when it comes to these things which love is not, he says, love does not envy. Zelao, we get our word zealous from that. It literally is a word for boiling. And he's telling us here that one of the things that you never find with love, or one of the things that love never leads you to do, is to be boiling to be seething, to be fuming, to be stewing, we would say, with envy. Some translations render this as jealous, others as envy. You could draw distinctions between the two, but there are a lot of similarities. It basically is that stewing sense of discontent at the advantages of others. 
not just discontent, though it often involves that, but it's that sense of hostility that you have. Sometimes even anger toward them because of their advantage. Now, it might be advantages in material support. It might be advantages in social standing. Or in some cases, it might even be advantages in ministry opportunity. And Paul's telling us that love doesn't do this. It doesn't stew in envy over people. It doesn't stew in envy over other opportunities that they may have. This is unfortunately something that creeps into the church and apparently had crept even into the Corinthian church. You remember, I told you last week, many of these words are simply reworked from earlier sections of Corinthians. Paul seems to be giving us a sort of solution list to all the vices and all the problems that were destroying their lives and destroying their church. And this is one of the first ones, one of the earliest ones that he addressed back in chapter 3 when he, he confronted the Corinthians. He says, while there's envy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? He's saying this to them because there were factions within the church. There were people who were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, or whatever. Paul confronts them with this attitude of envy and corrects their thinking, saying to them, look, sometimes people plant, sometimes people water, but God gives the increase. Sometimes people lay a foundation, sometimes people build on top of it. But it's the Lord's building, it is the Lord's field. And this is a very unfortunate thing that creeps in the churches. God uses you, He, he opens up a, a ministry opportunity for you. You sing a song, or you play an instrument, or you teach a class, or you're asked to handle some duty, or you're asked to oversee some sort of ministry, provide administrative help along the way. And you're blessed in being able to do it, but then someone comes along or, or that ministry comes up again and someone else is asked to oversee it. And immediately what arises in your heart is envy. You're envious because you weren't asked to do it again. You're envious because perhaps you're, think, you're, you're thinking you're not as trusted or not as talented or whatever it might be. You see the advantage. You see the privilege. You see the spotlight put on someone else. And you begin to seethe. This isn't love, Paul says. Love isn't marked by this kind of discontent. It isn't marked by this kind of stewing. It isn't something that generates this kind of attitude of competition or ambition or whatever it might be that accompanies envy. Paul says love doesn't do that because love is consistently focused on the needs of others. Not on itself. You can contrast this situation in Corinth with what took place in Paul's ministry not long after this. Eventually, after his ministry in Corinth was arrested in Rome. And while in prison, he tells us that there were some who took advantage of his weakness and his situation Philippians chapter 1, Paul says there were those who came along, a newer generation of preachers, ministering in the very churches where Paul himself had once labored, in Philippi, in Ephesus, in Berea, and Thessalonica, and probably in Corinth, all these places. And he says they preach Christ from envy. 
and rivalry. Others, he says, from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to add affliction to my imprisonment. These people were envious of Paul, envious of his reputation, envious of his accomplishments. And with a sense of rivalry, they intended to use his absence, to use his weakness and his affliction, use his suffering and his distress as an opportunity to disparage his character, to destroy his ministry and consequently to build themselves up. Paul, however, didn't resent their freedom. He didn't resent their success. He didn't resent their ministry. He had no envy. In fact, he says, you know, it doesn't matter whether by pretense or by love. What really matters to me is that Christ is being preached. This was his attitude. It doesn't matter if it's me. It doesn't matter if it's someone else. It doesn't matter if they're getting the attention, if they're getting the glory. It doesn't matter. I'm not envious of that. What matters to me is that Christ is being preached, that the church is being ministered to, that people's needs are being met, that the word's being proclaimed. That's really all that should matter to love. You see, Paul understood the age-old proverb, Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Or as we say in contemporary terms, envy shoots at others, but wounds itself. Paul understood this. He understood what, what James teaches, where jealousy and envy and selfish ambition exist. There's disorder in every evil thing. He understood that this kind of envy doesn't accomplish anything in the church. It doesn't accomplish anything in your life. If anything, it rots your bones and creates confusion and chaos and disorder and harm. And you can go to every infamous example of envy in Scripture and find the same principle to be true. Cain and Abel, Sarah and Hagar, Joseph and his brothers, Saul and David, Ahaz and Naboth. In every one of them, these envious people, seeking by their own devices to exalt their own agendas, all found themselves rotted to the core, destroyed by their own hate, instead of blessed by what love would have led them to do. You can't underestimate the destructive power of envy. And at the same time, you can't grow impatient with the transforming power of love. Paul says love doesn't envy. Secondly, a second antithesis here, in a very similar vein, he says love doesn't boast. It doesn't boast. He uses a word here, peripuromai, is a word that's very rare. In fact, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It essentially means something unique. And it draws the picture of the person who demands attention because they feel like they have something that no one else has. Something unique and something that ought to be paraded, something that ought to be displayed, something that ought to be exhibited. At least that's what they imagine it to be. This is the all-too-common trait where people seek to gain the attention of others 
or to place themselves at the center of attention, to dominate conversations, to dominate gatherings, all out of their own pride. This was a problem in Corinth as well. Uh, Later on in chapter 14, Paul talks about when they gathered for their public worship. He says in verse 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, each one has a lesson, each one has a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. That wasn't a commendation. Paul's not commending them in this. He's correcting them. Correcting them with this overall doctrine of love. He's talking about how when people arrive, they're looking immediately for some platform on which to exalt themselves, either literally or socially, where they can put themselves on display or put, to, put on display whatever it is that they think is this unique thing which brings them attention. In some cases, it is some talent. In some cases, it is some knowledge. In some cases, it's quite the opposite. It might be some pity party that you have. It might be some woe, some, some sort of distress that you feel like is far above everyone else's problems and must demand their attention. Whatever way it manifests itself, it's the same attitude behind it all. Paul's repeatedly addressed this throughout the book as well, this boastful nature back in Chapter 4, chapter 3 and 4, we saw how they boasted in their wisdom. In chapter 5, they were boasting rather than mourning the presence of sin in their congregation. In chapter 8, it was their knowledge that caused them to boast and be arrogant. It was a part of their, of their church because it was a part of their culture. This was what Corinthians did. This is what Greeks did at large. They, they saw it as a strength to boast in all of these sort of things. Aristotle, in his picture of the so-called great-souled man, said that he should have a profound sense of his own excellence and make it known. This is what was held up in their society, much like it is in ours. You're supposed to have a swagger. You're supposed to have some sort of uh, sense of of, uh, exuding confidence. Even without the culture, there's our own nature and our own heart which pushes us in this direction. We, We think that for whatever reason, for good or for bad, for strength or for weakness, for success or for struggle. We think for whatever reason we're unique. And we ought to have special privileges because of it. Paul says that's not the case. And love doesn't present itself this way. We don't imagine that the pathway to prominence is by arrogant and boastful claims either to some spiritual status or some spiritual trial either by wisdom or by knowledge. In fact, Paul says all of this is the antithesis of love. And according to verses 1 through 3, without love, you're nothing and you gain nothing. It's quite the opposite of your boasting. It's the validation that you're nothing. Thirdly, closely associated as well, Paul says love is an arrogant It's a word basically for lung. It's sometimes translated puffed up because of that. It's a windbag. 
It's a corresponding attitude behind the boastful speech. And again, it's considered a virtue in our society as it was in the Corinthian society. And Paul implies that this kind of arrogance is inconsistent with love as well as it's inconsistent with the law of God. It's a kind of attitude which places yourself at the center of attention and the center of the universe. A kind of arrogance that typically is coupled with a willingness to see the many, many faults of others while taking very little account of your own. And you know it when you're around an arrogant person. I mean, it may not manifest, it may manifest itself with pride and yelling and, and much speech, but it may manifest itself more subtly. If you're around an arrogant person, you'll often hear them uh, establishing, you might say, their superiority, the superiority of their wisdom and their, and their spirituality by tearing other people down rather than building them up. Tearing other people down to build themselves up. It's a glaring lack of a willingness to admit one's fault. You know, I've known some people, uh, worked uh, with, uh, with people in the past, I've I've served along people in different venues. I've, I've served with people sometimes for long periods of time and never once heard them ask for forgiveness. Never once heard them admit a fault. It's difficult to be around people like that. Jesus sort of typified this type of person in his parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. When the Pharisee was more interested in criticizing, despising a tax collector who was at the back of the, uh, of the temple rather than confessing his own faults, thanking God for all of his righteousness and his righteous deeds. But all along the way, he asked God, no mercy, no grace, no forgiveness, no help. Those weren't part of his prayers because they weren't part of his heart. It's not the way he viewed himself. That's not the way he conducted himself. It's not the way he prayed. While all the time at the back of the temple, this tax collector wouldn't even lift up his face from the ground, but he pounded his chest continually saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is the attitude not only of righteousness. Jesus said this is the one who went back to his home justified. This is the attitude of love. This arrogance that Paul's talking about is is the raw form of self-love that is the antithesis of any kind of genuine love that Paul has in mind. It may find ways to masquerade as love, even in our society, which, which has a narcissistic view of love, but in any kind of biblical sense, it is the exact opposite. Because love consistently removes itself from the center of consideration and puts others there. And so arrogance has no place in love. Fourthly, Paul says love is not rude. It's not rude. And again, like so many of the terms in this list, Paul's already used this word so we get a sense of what he means. Particularly back in chapter 12, He used it in verse 23 to speak of those parts of our body which are unpresentable. Those unpresentable parts of our body. It's a word that essentially means that. It means unpresentable or in some cases uncovered. 
in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it's often used to translate naked. And so we would, we would understand what Paul's saying here. He says, love doesn't present what is unpresentable. It doesn't, it doesn't do that which is considered socially unpresentable or morally unpresentable. It doesn't follow a pathway that defies those social and moral standards. Things that result in shame, in embarrassment, and in disgrace. That's not, by the way, just embarrassment for you. It's embarrassment for the people who are around you. Because many times, even those that we would call shameless, bring great shame on those that are around them because of their impropriety. All this is to say simply that love makes us considerate of others. Love manifests itself in courtesy, it manifests itself in good manners, it manifests itself in good taste. So your, your culture at large wants to tell you that those are just issues of preference. It wants to tell you that those are, those are issues of, of personal upbringing, maybe. But Paul says that's not the case. Love, love drives you in this direction. It certainly would begin with your wardrobe, as Paul uses the word in chapter 12 to talk about unpresentable parts of your body. We would understand that love affects the way you dress. That is to say, it doesn't dress in unseemly ways. It doesn't dress in insensitive ways. It doesn't present itself in immodest ways because it is sensitive to the weaknesses and to the conscience of others. Love also wouldn't speak in unseemly ways ways that are considered rude. It wouldn't use language that is offensive to others. It wouldn't introduce topics into public conversation which are really better dealt with in private. Love wouldn't act in rude and crude and unseemly ways. It doesn't act out of term. It doesn't doesn't behave with disregard for the concerns and the comforts of those who are around them. Love is considered... Consider it to put other people at ease, not on edge. It respects their place. It honors those who are deserving of honor. It operates with social grace. All these are involved when Paul says that we are to love one another. These are love in the little things. You begin to get your mind around this. You begin to comprehend the impact of love on even the smallest of ways, the smallest of actions, the smallest of deeds in social society. A loving person is concerned about the small details of politeness and propriety and manners. Not that we're consumed with the appearance for appearance sake, but love is concerned with not making other people feel uncomfortable unnecessarily. And so it is considerate of others at all times and in all ways. There is, as I said, a number of people today who would scoff at such things, that sneer at social decorum, somehow see rudeness as a badge of their courage, an unwillingness to be conformed to society at large, an indifference to the opinion of others that somehow they claim as a virtue. But Paul says that's not a badge of your courage, it's a badge of your selfishness. It's a badge of your self-centeredness. Love doesn't behave that way. It influences even the smallest areas of social politeness. 
because those areas impact others. And love for others always dominates. Politeness, social decorum, consideration for others. Next, Paul says love doesn't insist on its own way. This might be the most basic definition of love. This is what we're told in 1 John 3. By this we know love because Christ laid down His life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So it's very basic sense. It's defined, as we've said in the past, by what Christ has shown us on the cross. And what Christ showed us on the cross is that love doesn't seek its own. It understands the emptiness of things which are achieved for selfish motives. It takes its greatest delight in the delight of others. Jonathan Edwards' summary uh, in one of his great resolutions, he says, Henceforth I am not to act in any respect as my own. I shall act as my own if... I ever make use of any of my powers to anything that's not to the glory of God and do not make glorifying of Him my whole and entire business. If I murmur in the least at affliction, if I grieve at the prosperity of others, if I am in any way uncharitable, if I'm angry because of injuries, if I revenge them, if I do anything purely to please myself, and if I avoid anything for the sake of my own ease, if I omit anything because of its great self-denial, if I trust to myself, if I take any praise of the good that I do or that God does by me, if I am in any way proud. This is almost a summary of 1 Corinthians 13. Because Edwards understood at the very core, this is what love is. It doesn't seek its own. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is, it is dedicated in all that it does to the pleasure and the benefit of others. Now, Paul's already laid this out. You remember back over in chapter 10, this is what he, this is what he says in response to, to the issue of the law. He says in verse 23, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Or he, he comes down later in verse 32, he says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. This, by the way, is, is Paul's summary in verse 31 of what it means to do all to the glory of God. This is love for him. It isn't the calculated efforts to exalt yourself and to see some benefit, even even by those compliments, even by those deeds and those acts that you may sometimes do to be reciprocated by others. Paul says at the very fundamental core, love dies to itself. It dies to itself because it understands that's true living. It crucifies its own selfish ambition because it knows that's the way truly to progress it understands that any self-seeking joy is no joy indeed compared to the joy that you find in the joy of others 
And since love has set aside a concern for self, it can no longer find itself threatened. I mean, when you die, no one can threaten you, right? There's nothing anyone can do to you once you die. And once you've died to yourself, therefore, the next characteristic of love is true. Love is not irritable, or as some versions say, it's not provoked. I mean, now, since you're no longer at the center of your, of your world, since you're no longer at the center of your attention, since you're no longer insisting on your way, what can people do to irritate you? I mean, you can only be irritated if you have plans and you have desires and you have goals and you have all these things that can be crossed. This this word basically means to grind something against a stone. And what you find is that people aren't able to do that anymore if you're truly governed by love. We would say it maybe in contemporary sense, love isn't touchy. You know those people. Those people who, who, when you're around them, you're always on edge about what you might say and what you might do because it might set them off. You're always having to, to hold back and you're always having to check yourself because you're always afraid that they're just going to explode. They're touchy. They're easily irritable because they aren't governed by love or they're governed by self-love, I should say. Not true love. People who are easily provoked, people who are irritable, essentially put themselves at the center of the universe again. They are expecting or even demanding that everyone around them bow to their whims, their preferences. But love aims at an attitude of servanthood, not to yourself but to others, to put them at ease, to bring them some practical benefit. A person who's easily provoked lays a heavy burden on those around them. They're always afraid of what might be the next irritant for you. You distance yourself from people, whether intentionally or unintentionally. You say, well, I mean, I might lose my temper from time to time, but I mean, it passes quickly. There's no damage done. Let me tell you, a nuclear bomb passes quickly, too. But the damage is long-lasting, right? You just don't realize it. Temper is always destructive. Psalm 37, refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, because it tends only to evil. Don't give your heart to these kinds of things. They are not what you think they are. They are not the solution to manipulating people around you and finding your true joy. They're the solution to, excuse me, they're the pathway to your destruction. Paul says love is the solution. Love doesn't tell others, demand of others always to comply with your whims. It always seeks out of consideration to serve them. And then Paul says also love isn't resentful sort of goes along with this easy provocation. He says, love isn't resentful. Or as some versions put it, love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Because the word logizomai is a word for accounting, a word for a ledger to, to reckon something or to keep a record of something. And so what he's saying is, love quickly overlooks offenses, it quickly overlooks transgressions, it forgets about them, 
It doesn't keep books, which it reads and rereads over and over again, hoping for a chance to get even. This is human nature taking into account things that were done wrong and waiting for the moment to bring them up again. Waiting for the moment for vengeance. Waiting for the moment to inflict the pain that we feel like someone deserves. But a heart that's filled and controlled by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ stores up no such resentment. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love doesn't cover offenses in the sense of wanting people to, to be enabled in their sin. Love doesn't cover offenses in the sense of, of a fear of their retaliation and therefore allowing them to go on in the pursuit of self-destructive behavior. What he's talking about here, the writer of Proverbs, is that love, it desires to keep sins as private as possible. It desires not to bring them up publicly. And if they can be overlooked, it overlooks them. Proverbs 17, he who covers a transgression seeks love. Same, same concept. He, he wants to cover over. He wants to keep it as muted as possible. But love even itself realizes that sometimes you must deal with it, right? So don't misunderstand this covering. Don't misunderstand this, this point of love when it keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't mean that you will never bring up an issue in someone's life that's taken place in the past. You must do that. Scripture says that the one who turns back a sinner from his way will save a, tr- a transgressor from, from his sins. We'll do that out of love. But love quickly forgets. It desires to cover things up as quickly as possible. And it keeps them covered. You know, you, you may not understand this. I've heard people say, you know, I can forgive, but I can't forget. Well, when we talk about forgetfulness, you have to understand our paradigm is God. God's the one who says that He cast our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. And guess what? God never literally forgets anything. But what He's talking about is a, a sort of an agreement covenant that God makes in his own heart that when a sin has been dealt with and forgiven he's promising never to bring it up again between us and him or use it against us in any way that's what you're promising to do when you forgive someone you're not promising to put it away until a more convenient time when you can bring it back to throw it in their face you're promising that that particular thing whatever it might be will never be brought up again are used against the one you've forgiven in any particular way. Love, therefore, isn't entertained. It isn't delighted. It doesn't find any pleasure in highlighting, in surfacing the faults of others. And that brings us to the final antithesis that Paul Highlights here, he says, love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, or it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, as some versions say. This is, this is primary, because all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness is a violation of God's law and a rebellion against His character. 
All unrighteousness is opposition to God, and therefore it comes with a price. Linsky, a commentator, says anything that's wrong in God's sight grieves a heart that's full of love, not merely because the wrong hurts the one to whom it's done, but especially because God is displeased with the wrong, and He must punish it in some way. Instead of rejoicing over the wrong, love grieves over the wrong. We don't find any delight. A loving person doesn't find any delight in highlighting the wrong of other people or in any way bringing attention to it, or for that matter, being entertained by it at all times. There's this perverse pleasure, it seems, all around us with exposing and, and examining faults and failures of others. It's a depraved pleasure that sells magazines and newspapers and websites. It caters to, to expose people. The same sort of pleasure that makes children tattle on their brothers and sisters. All of it driven by the same lack of love. Love doesn't do that. It doesn't sit down to ponder how to expose others. And it doesn't sit down to want to watch others be exposed. It doesn't delight in the shame. It doesn't delight in the unrighteousness. And for that matter, it isn't entertained by either a book or a movie that highlights things which are an offense to God. It doesn't delight in wrongdoing. Instead, Paul says, love rejoices in the truth. Now you think about that for a moment. Why in the world does he contrast wrongdoing with truth? You would think he would contrast wrongdoing with rightdoing, unrighteousness with righteousness. Well, the truth here that he's talking about is the truth of God's word, and it is that truth which establishes righteousness. See, we rejoice in, we rejoice in the truth because this is what brings glory to God. This is what pleases God. We rejoice in it because it is, it is the thing which lays out the pathway opposite of unrighteousness. That's why it's ludicrous when people begin to set the concept of love over against the concept of God's Word. You hear it all the time. Well, you've got a decision to make. You've got a decision to be faithful to God's Word or faithful to love someone. That's ridiculous. As if somehow those two things are opposed. As if in order to love others, you need to set aside God's truth, set aside doctrine, set aside concern for what's right and wrong. Love can't do that because it fundamentally rejoices in truth. Love fundamentally rejoices in doctrine. It fundamentally rejoices in the teaching of right and wrong. It rejoices to see people discover the light of God's Word. It rejoices to see people find blessing in following it. This is what love seeks. This is, by the way, the summary of love. The summary of love itself. Jesus says this is the summary of all the law and all the prophets. New Testament and Old Testament as well. This is the summary of love. It's the truth of God. And so love rejoices in that which is loving. How else could it rejoice in anything else, right? Well, these are love. Love in the little things. When you begin to see all of these antitheses, you begin to realize that, man, 
there are so many ways where God's will can be manifest in our lives that we overlook on a daily basis. Four attitudes that follow up on this, Paul gives us in the remaining two verses. We'll have to wait till next week to get into them. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this truth and understand, even as we read it, how woefully short we fall. We understand, Lord, that in so many ways we have placed ourselves at the core and the center of our life, demanding others meet our expectations, taking petty offense when they don't, finding ways to always subtly boast and bring attention, maximizing our strengths, minimizing our weaknesses. Lord, we understand, though, that he who boasts should boast in you. And the one who delights doesn't delight in his own way, but he delights in yours. Love loves the truth because love loves you. So, Lord, we pray that you would, in our hearts again, inflame that love for you, which drives out any love of self, which turns us again to the love of our neighbor, allows us to find the great blessing of genuine, authentic love, the love that's been poured out in our hearts by Christ Jesus. Lord, we know that you have the power to do this. And we know you hear our prayers as we pray in accordance with your will. So we ask you, Lord, fill our hearts with love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.